Hi, I'm Charlotte Jukes and welcome to MPLH In Conversation With, the podcast where we sit with influential and interesting people committed to enacting positive change within the beautiful game. In this episode, I speak to Salon Andy Hickman, Head of Impact and Female Participation at Football Beyond Borders, or FBB, as we refer to throughout the podcast. In the episode, we discuss Salon's lifelong relationship with football, from travelling around the country's League One matches as a 10-year-old. So when I was growing up, I used to sit in his car and we used to go all the way around the country to all these kind of League One, Championship, League Two games whilst he was scouting. Two, importantly, how it felt to be a female player when the FA shut down performance academies for many girls in the UK. But we'd gone from, oh, this is really serious and we're elite players and we're really learning and developing and now we're back in this environment where we're stagnating. In the episode, Salon outlines the importance of the work that FBB does and highlights that many of us consume football from a very privileged position. The work that FBB does empowers many communities left behind by society and policymakers alike, and it focuses on young people. We hope you enjoy the episode. Hello, Salon and a very warm welcome to the No Place Like Home podcast. We are delighted to have you on today's episode. Now, clearly throughout the episode, we're going to be going into your relationship with football, as well as your current role and the advocacy you're doing for Football Beyond Borders. So if we can kick off, where did the relationship with football first start for you? It's a great question and I'm really, really happy to have been invited on. So thanks for having me. Um, My relationship to football, I guess, like most girls and women who play football, uh, I was introduced to football through my dad. Um, I was three years old and I started playing for the local primary school, my, my primary school's team. And my dad was the manager and had an older brother and he was kind of into football, but not massively. He was more into music. Um, and I think my dad really wanted a daughter or son who was who had the same sort of passion that football that he had for football. But as yeah, that was me starting to play at three. But I think football had always kind of been in my blood. So my parents, um, my mum went to Liverpool University. My dad, um, his first job out of university was managing the student entertainment uh, in Liverpool. So my dad lived on Anfield Road as like a 21 year old 22 year old and was putting on gigs across the city and he used to go to like 48 game seasons he'd be like home away yeah I mean he had a ticket for Hillsborough he didn't actually go but he was at Heisel he went to European nights and all sorts and then my mum was actually studying at Liverpool Uni and she was um she was working at the club she was working at Anfield she was working in the Crown Paints Players Lounge at the time so she was there like as a waitress serving all of these the greats basically of the 80s they met, uh, both had the Liverpool thing in common. Um, so when I was born, there was probably no choice about who I was going to support. And I'm very, very, very grateful um, now in my adult life that I'm a Liverpool fan. No, I've always been grateful that I'm a Liverpool fan. Absolutely. I love the club and the culture and the politics and everything that goes with it. Um, but then my playing journey started at three years old and I started to play um, only girl in the boys team and never really realised that I was kind of a girl. I just thought, oh, it's just a sport that I love, but I'm also kind of surrounded all by boys. And my friends who are girls aren't really doing this, but it didn't really bother me. And in my family as well, so there's one final, like, entrenched connection to football. So my middle name is Andy, A-N-D-I, but it's named after uh, a man called Andy King. Um, he was, uh, played for Everton in the 70s, late 70s, uh, and he also played for Luton Town. He's from Luton. He was my mum and dad's best friend. Uh, I was a bridesmaid at his wedding and he was always working football. So he was a manager of Swindon Town, um, Northampton. He was the assistant to Eddie Boothroyd and then he was a scout. So when I was growing up, I was playing a lot of football, but then also kind of at the weekends, mum and dad would be like, what do we do with Salon? Oh, we'll just give her to Andy. And I used to sit in his car and we used to go all the way around the country to all these kind of League One, Championship, League Two games whilst he was scouting. And he'd bring this like 10-year-old girl with him. Uh, and I'd be in the car and he'd be having all these like, really long phone calls with different managers about different players and I'd look at his kind of sketchbook in the in the ground and they'd be like hieroglyphics and stuff and I'd be like oh my god this is amazing I don't know what's going on and he used to take me to different managers offices and grounds and all sorts so he was playing he one of his 
um, clubs as a professional athlete was at Luton Town. And then I start, got signed my first contract at 11 years old with Luton Town at Centre of Excellence. And I played for them for five years. Um, and then from there, yeah, just went to university, played. Um, never thought I'd work in football, which is weird considering all the stuff that I've just spoken about probably did look more obvious than I expected. Um, and yeah, that's, that's kind of been ever since. I really don't think my life would have not involved football. And when you were kind of travelling around with Andy, did you ever feel like the environment was difficult to be in as a 10-year-old girl? Or do you think it kind of went over your head a bit? I remember one moment really, really vividly where me and my brother had gone with him to a game. And it was when he was manager of Swindon Town. And I think they were probably coming off the back of a lot of bad results. We'd seen them lose, I'm sure. And we were in the car park afterwards. We were waiting for ages because Andy was doing all the post-match stuff. And then he took us to the car park. There were some fans and they just started screaming and swearing and shouting at him. And he was like, are you really going to do that in front of like two kids? Like, really? And at that moment, I was like, oh, there's kind of a nastier side to football. But I was so young. I must have been about eight or nine at that point. That, it, yeah, I guess it kind of washed over my head. I never, I never... In those interactions with him, I think because I felt so safe in his company that I never really realised I was a girl or shouldn't be in this space. And I think I was probably the novelty sort of kid that was brought along, like who brings a 10 year old girl who's into football to work for these things. So I think that always it was it was much it, when I was six years old, I remember f the first time I felt I was a girl in a guy's game. And it was because I was playing in a school football tournament. Me being the only girl on the team, I was a defender. And this boy comes running through. I tackled him and emerged the other side. I was running off with the ball. And everyone started laughing, like players and parents. And then I kind of turned around and this boy, I remember his name, his name was Archie. He was on the floor cry, um, crying. And I tackled him and made him cry. And that's why everyone was laughing. And the St. John's ambulance men walked onto the pitch laughing because the girl, the only girl on the pitch made the boy cry. And I was like, okay, this doesn't seem right. This wouldn't have happened with anyone else. And that was the moment I think I realised I was a bit different. And I don't think it becomes pronounced until you're actually made not to play with the boys anymore. And, or you leave primary school and you're like, oh, I'm actually a girl now, I'm not just a child. Before I was felt much more like a child and you have this sort of freedom and you can do what you want. And then I left and was like, oh, I'm not supposed to do this. All of my friends play netball and I'm here in football shirts trying to run around and play football. So... I think, yeah, there were different moments where I felt it. Yeah. And do you remember when um, you got to that point where it wasn't longer acceptable for you to play in a boys team? Because for a lot of people that I know, there was a very grey line. Um, I think it was actually written in FA policy that girls had to stop at a certain age because of changing room requirements, privacy. But it wasn't ever necessarily that clear. And I think certain leagues imposed it as well. Can you remember that? period for yourself yeah absolutely I used to play for a team called Flittick Eagles and it was me and my best friend Lucy and we met eight years old and we were the two girls in the team the rest were boys and we were like dominating you know when you were that like you know lower school primary school kid and it team it's your football club outside and you just sweep up and you win everything and you're scoring loads of goals we were like that team and we were then I think probably 12 when they said to us you can't play in that team anymore because you two are girls, you've got to go and find your own team. And I think we found that quite difficult because, yeah, by playing with boys and then going to play with girls who may be just beginning in football or in the, particularly in the grassroots club, the Flitter Eagles Girls Club, it was harder for us because we were just like, this isn't as good. We're not a stretch. We're not playing the sorts of standard that we were playing before. And that's why I went then to a centre of excellence setup. The two of us actually went together and that was super elite. It was some of the best coaching I've ever had. It was um yeah dietitians urine charts to check how hydrated we were international tours loads of physios UEFA B license coaches minimum and we were playing Arsenal Chelsea Liverpool etc and traveling all around the country and that was amazing incredible for our development and we played there for five years and we'd have fitness testing and contracts being renewed depending on how we scored on our testing and all sorts and then at 16 the FA took the decision to close 30 girls center of excellences across the country and at that time I was like how many boys center of excellences are being closed why is Luton boys staying open and we're not and we had to raise like 100 grand or something to be able to stay open 
And we tried to fundraise. I think my mum was like, we'll go backpacking at Sainsbury's and Tesco to try and make the money up. Um, and we couldn't because we were a small club. And um, from that moment, we were all kind of forced back into grassroots football. Suddenly, like, we're having to put the nets up at the weekend. And we've kind of just gone from this mad elite setup on our doorstep back to wonky pitches and women's football where it's not taken, it wasn't taken at the time as seriously, no linos, refs turning up 20 minutes late, all those sorts of things that come with Sunday league football. But we'd gone from, oh, this is really serious and we're elite players and we're really learning and developing. And now we're back in this environment where we're stagnating. And it was like, what happened to, why is there so many options for boys to play? And for us, that's just been withdrawn from, from our doorsteps, really. And it's interesting, isn't it, how now, you know, kind of in, in the recent weeks, in fact, that the spotlight is back on that exact conversation of, well, OK, why are women's elite academies so under-resourced? And it is historical. You know, someone said, well, five, ten years ago, someone decided to pull the plug and we didn't have enough clout to say that's not acceptable. And I feel like the momentum's changing now for sure. But it's, you know, super delayed and, you know, people like yourself had that opportunity taken away. And I think you then saw a big consolidation of the elite academies that then, you know, kind of drip fed into very few teams. And then you see the, the differential between the quality of playing, right? Um, so yeah, that to have experienced that must have been very difficult actually, particularly at a very, I think teenage years are always difficult anyway, but to have your big hobby sort of transformed like that must have been um, quite an experience, quite frustrating, I imagine. Definitely. And I, I feel very fortunate that I've come back round to the game and that that barrier at 16 didn't push me away from it. And that's probably because of the sort of the capital, the cultural, the social capital that I had through my family, through the, the stories that I've told already, that it was so embedded that it allowed me to come back. But I did drop out of football for that year of, I think I was in year 12 and I was like, no, studies are more important and that's coming from someone who's played since they were three years old and it's been everything and had given so much structure to my life and even then I was like well I'm not going to play for you because there's nowhere for me to play I have all these protective factors that allow me to continue accessing the game to come back around to it to know that it's always going to be there for me imagine how many for every one of me there were 10 girls that didn't come back to the game and that that's horrendous to think of how many girls were pushed out at that time and how many girls will be pushed out now because of the academy closures and the fact that well even there are so many structural barriers for girls to be able to access football elite football particularly and like you said it gets contra it gets concentrated in where the power and the money is in the men's game and suddenly there's only there's there's very narrow paths to development and despite I did work at the FA for a year and I delivered on the women's football strategy for double participation until 2020. And there is so much good work going on in there. But my fear is that it's work for, when we're thinking about the elite game, it's work for girls who already have what I had growing up, which is a minimum of a supportive parent that can get you to training, access to a car, lives in an area where there's a, a setup close to them. Um, because if you are a girl from London who might not have that, but is 12 years old, and yes, apparently there's loads of clubs, Arsenal, Chelsea, et cetera, but they're all in the sticks. They're not, if you're in a city, London, you're not going to be 12 years old getting on public transport to go out to Cobham or to go up to Boreham Wood to go and train two, three times a week. And if you don't have a parent that's get, putting you in the car every night to take you there, sit at training off until 10 11 at night, getting you home, getting you ready to school the next day. There's so many structural barriers for girls to access the elite football that unless we have people in the FA leading on this strategy who either come from these communities or know these communities really well or look like the people in these communities or listen to these people, they're, they're never going to have a, a, a true reflection of what the barriers are and what life is really like if you want to access football. And they'll make decisions and they'll design systems, they'll design approaches that aren't for the girls that that are for the girls that will always access football and that's my fear and I think the FA needs to change internally and the FA needs to listen more and and I think there are definitely strides towards it but these <laughs> the recent events of the you know the academies doesn't help it doesn't also help with the reputation of the FA as well so 
yeah, I just think there's, there's a lot of work that still needs to be done if we're serious about, I guess, changing the face of women's football, which is super white, but also ensuring that every girl, no matter what her background is, no matter her socioeconomic status, whatever, can access the elite game if they're good enough to. And at the moment, I just don't believe that that exists. Yeah, and I think you touch on really important points there that a lot of people see football as a game that people turn up to and leave because as you say a lot of us have grown up in environments that that is the case and you know we have parents who aren't working on the weekend which actually is very contained in our own little bubble of comfort because it's not reflective of the real world necessarily and I mean you work with Football Beyond Borders that I feel like are an organization that are trying to provide solutions to a lot of these barriers um, so I'd love to hear, you know, a bit about your role there um, and how you came across the organisation and we'll, we'll go from there. Yeah, that's a, it's a good story, actually. I think one of the things we talk about often at FBB is that like people who come to FBB never get in on like their first go. Basically, we're all pretty persistent and we kind of stay in, in, in contact and we'll apply for a role and not quite get it and that sort of thing. Um, and that is exactly what happened to me. So I was in my final year at uni and I was studying um a degree called human social and political sciences and in that degree i was studying the sociology of education and politics and gender and i was playing for uni the university football team and all of my family are educators really so my mum was a head of sixth form in a school in luton my grandma uh, was a teacher in a school called stansbury campus my great grandma my my great aunts everyone's a teacher basically and i always knew that i wanted to work in education um, both for the fact that I love it and I love working with young people um, and always felt really at home, fortunately, in, in a school, in a classroom environment, but also too because of, I guess, my activism and the way that I see social change happening, I think it is through education primarily. So loved football, really wanted to work in education, but never wanted to be a mainstream teacher because I'd seen what had happened to my mum, like the kind of stresses um, that I guess the uh, coalition government really brought in Gove's reforms to the education system and what it did to teaching. And I lived through that and I was like, I want to work in schools and I really like this, but I can't do what my mum did basically. And then from there, yeah, so my friend said to me in my final year at uni, come across this charity called Football Beyond Borders. I think you'll love it. Go and look at their website. Anyway, I got a bit obsessed with their website and there's a video that on the landing page that used to be there, it's gone now. I was just watching it. I was like, this is where I want to work. This is amazing. So I wrote an email to the director at the time called Jasper Kane. Um, and he invited me down to meet them in Camberwell in South London in a place called the Hollington Youth Centre, which was their old office. And I remember, I remember dressing up quite smart and then regretting that instantly when I got there because everyone was in tracksuits. Um, and it was, yeah, it was a wicked conversation. I think I, I felt instantly that I was around, of people, around a team of people when I walked in who were yeah at, at essence activists and wanted to make a difference and and in, sounds so cliche and trite but genuinely really extremely passionate and intelligent and um tenacious team of people who were like we've got something here there are so many things wrong with how this country and this society views and treats young people we feel like we have a, I guess, a, a recipe for something here that can, can change that. And I met them then, and then I kind of stayed in touch. And then they asked me, sent out a job advert, and were like, do you think you should apply? And so I applied for the job, and then I didn't get the job. Anyway, long story short, stayed in touch, got this job with the FA, worked for the FA for nine, 10 months or so. Enjoyed it, but was feeling like it wasn't enough contact with young people too corporate for me and it was not stretching enough basically and I spoke to FPB and it anyway came about that I went for a role um, and I got the job and that was in August 2018 and I just haven't really looked back since I guess um, and I came in at the time when there were no the, the FPB always tried to work with girls in the past and they've done it in various different ways but I think yeah, I guess they won't mind me saying it, but they were a kind of a team of men who always had the right intentions and the, the, the best politics, but were like, we don't quite have maybe the networks or the skills or 
to really know how we can do this most effectively with girls. So I kind of came in and started just running three girls programs, one in Peckham, one in Tulse Hill, one in Croydon. And I learned so much just in that, that first year, like, yeah, delivering to around 60 girls and just getting to know them, like what were the challenges that they were facing and really trying to learn. And I worked really, really closely with a group of girls who were in year 11 at school in Croydon, who had been with FBB for five years and they'd seen different iterations of girls programs and that sort of thing. And they were basically absolutely critical. Those, those four plus um, a girl called Deborah, who was the year above them. So it was working yeah, a team of 16 and 17 year olds. And we would meet basically every Friday and we would just sit down and be like, what do girls need from FBB? How do we ensure that we are providing the best possible support for these girls to get on in education, to stay in school, to develop kind of the social and emotional skills that we think are really important for young people to thrive and build relationships and also to do well in their studies and to play football? What do, what do they need from us? And we basically just designed as we went along at each week, um, sessions, program, the ways that we would relate to them um, and take them on trips, etc., and just learn continuously through that year, which then led us to a point to be able to get funding from uh, Nike with the original backers of the girls program. Um, and we managed to treble from three programs to nine last year. And now we're growing even more each year. So yeah, it's been a massive journey and a massive learning curve. And I think, yeah, there's so many sort of intricacies and differences between girls and boys who are teenagers and their relationship to football, but also the challenges that they face are so different as well. So you, we knew that you couldn't just pick up something that was designed for boys and, and get it to work with girls. Um, and yeah, we're still on that journey, definitely. Um, but I've made huge progress and now we've got around 200 girls in the programme um, and with, with a view to growing that even more next year. Yeah, and when you look at FBB online, it's very clear that, you know, you do have programmes that cater for boys and girls separately. Now, you mentioned, you know, you kind of did a lot of on-the-ground work to find out how those needs differed. Can you say quite generally, you know, kind of an overview of what the fundamental difference is between what boys would need from FBB and what girls would need? Obviously, there's a lot of overlap, nevertheless, um, but I guess you can kind of see some key themes. Yeah, definitely. And I think it, it's hard to have this conversation without falling into generic stereotypes about the differences between girls and boys. And I think I came into the role in a really interesting position of doing a lot of gender theory at uni and theoretically really being like, gender differences are super socially constructed and it's not helpful to talk about them because actually they're just a projection of what society is and you know gender is just performative etc but yes whilst I still believe that is true it doesn't mean it doesn't have real material like intangible effects in a young person's life yes gender I still believe is socially constructed entirely but if you are by the time I've met you at 12 years old in a classroom and you've been socially constructed to be a girl, then those differences are important and you have to design for those differences. And I think what's interesting in FBB context is that boys, so we exist first and foremost to work with young people who are really passionate about football, but disengaged in education and often at risk of being excluded from school permanently. And we help them to kind of stay in school over three, four years. We, so we start working with them in year eight we take them all the way to year 11 and we support them to get those social emotional skills that I mentioned and also to get their English and maths GCSE and we do that through that kind of long-term intensive and relational support so we build really strong relationships between practitioner young people and young people and their peers in the group and try and use those relationships to be able to go on and achieve those outcomes as well we've got loads of other things going on as well we've got a therapeutic model we have an amazing classroom and pitch curriculum which is all tapping into young people's passions around whether that's football whether it's music etc but in essence we're really about relationships with girls and boys the the thing the major difference in the starting point is that if you are a boy and if you're a black caribbean boy at that you are way more likely to be excluded from school than if you're a girl permanently excluded so when basically the main common the most common uh, uh reason for permanent exclusion from school which is documented in the statistics is um 
persistent disruptive behavior. And that sounds really vague, but that's basically what it is. It's persistent disruptive behavior. The young person's been moved out of the school permanently. They can no longer stay there. They've made that decision. It's gone to the senior leadership team, the governors, etc. Now we believe that basically all, all behavior is a form of communication. So that young person who has come into a classroom and has maybe flipped a chair that day, that is them communicating something that's either happened to them in the past, something that maybe happened that morning, and isn't isn't just a, a kid wanting to you know chuck a chair because for the sake of chucking a chair. So we we all of our work is trauma informed. So we look at kind of the underlying trauma and adverse childhood experiences which can manifest themselves for a young person to not be able to regulate as well as a young person who hasn't had a traumatic upbringing, for example. So while whilst for boys and girls they can go through exactly the same trauma, right? They could have exactly the same adverse childhood experience. But the challenges and the way that that trauma will manifest itself will be different and we can get into why that is it might be because girls are more um socialized to know that reactions to their anger and their outward aggression will be penalized harsher because it's not it's not girly to to get angry right whereas the boys will be boys narrative is i'm i'm really angry i've got these feelings and i'm gonna flip out and be aggressive rather than have the emotional language to talk about it because it's not it's not appropriate for me to have the emotional language because i'm a boy and that would be soft i don't know that's kind of the i'm stereotyping paraphrasing but so boys will flip out cause disruption etc girls will more likely internalize and often that will be that will manifest itself in kind of low self-esteem um negative and and distrusting relationships between girls um, more maybe harmful sexual behavior, maybe more risk, risk taking in that regard. Um, and they're the kind of challenges that, that play out, but because those challenges for girls don't often lend them to getting excluded because it's not disruptive and persistently disruptive in a classroom. And actually it's probably way more, well, not way more, but it's disruptive to the, I guess, the psyche, the sense of self, the ability to form relationships, the, maybe manifest itself in depression, eating disorders, et cetera. But it's less of a kind of overt problem in a school to a school leader because they're not seeing it as much. So that already is your initial challenge with FBB coming into your school is, well, why would we use FBB for girls? Because we've got 16 boys that might get excluded from school because they keep being persistently disruptive, but our girls are all going through all these mad challenges, but because they're not manifesting themselves outwardly in the way that the boys are, we'll probably divert the resource to, to the boys. And that's a constant challenge that I'm having to fight against because girls need FBB just as much as boys do. Um, and that means also that our, like, how we design our program is, is quite different for, for what the girls need support with and what the boys need support with. Yeah, and it, it's interesting because that almost plays into the narrative of the education system as well, because there's so much pressure on educational institutions to have lower exclusions, you know, lower suspensions that actually, when they see the opportunity to decrease that, you feel like it will naturally be slanted towards the boys because they'll think, well, on paper, you know, we've got X number of boys being excluded. And if we can bring that down, great. But actually, what about the issues that girls might face that might manifest themselves when they're mid-20s at you know a really kind of vulnerable time in life and actually just because it's not visible and just because it's not openly disruptive and violent it's still an issue and I think you know to have that understanding as an organization is so important now you've spoken a bit about you know the kind of the growing numbers of participants at FBB how would you describe the the atmosphere within the community you know what what strikes you as the feeling in FBB, you know, across the practitioners and the, the participants? Our current atm atmosphere, the current feeling in response to kind of COVID, et cetera, and what's going on. Um, with FBB, there is always, always a real presence of optimism and hope because we all get to work with young people every day who just instill that in you. And you can be working with some of the young people who have had some of the most unimaginable and difficult circumstances to grow up in yet you can have these incredibly transformative and meaningful moments with them every single week and whether you're one of our therapists allowing being allowed into the i guess the inner psyche of a young person that's such a privilege or you're our project lead who is 
out there delivering some amazing projects and hearing young people's take on the world at the moment, there is, there, there's, there are an unlimited resource of, of hope and optimism and creativity that if you don't, yeah, I, I, I envy, well, I don't envy, no. I feel sorry for anyone who doesn't get to work with young people because they are that endless source of hope and optimism. So we get to see that, but then I would say that there is always an undercurrent of anger. And I think anger and, um, yeah, yeah, I'd say anger about the system that we live in. And I think at FBB, one of our, one of our challenges and continual things we have to push for and remind ourselves of that this is also important is yes the day-to-day -day work on the ground every single day with these young people that's transformative but we also have a duty to these young people to lobby and to really challenge the system that they're being put into and that is treating them the way that it is and by that i mean our education system that we talked about and the, the scrutiny on these young people's results being that thing that de determines them in life and that's why we're so clear at fbb that it could be really easy for us to just say look We'll use football to get kids their English and Maths GCSEs. Boom, done, they'll be fine. We know there is so much more to life than a grade four on a piece of paper at the end of year 11. We know that that's important because it's, it's a protective factor. It can allow them to go on and take the next steps that they want to. But what really matters to us all is our relationships. They're what make the world go around. It's what we've seen through COVID is that everyone is so upset and angry and suffering because they can't see the people that they love and what our theory of change is that to build those relationships and to be able for young people to go out and and have these really meaningful and trusted relationships whether they're with a trusted adult in their life or their peers that they need a set of social emotional skills which we there's, there's five of them we focus on and they need those to then go out and be able to to develop those relationships so for example, self-awareness is number one for us. It's like, how do we make young people more aware of themselves, their processes, their feelings, their thoughts, their behaviors. And then we look at kind of self-management. How do we help them manage their triggers? How do we help them have the tools and the skill sets to be able to go and navigate different situations? And then it's uh, kind of like looking at social awareness, relationship skills, how to make responsible decisions. Um, so, and that we then think sets them up to be able to build those relationships. So I guess the feeling going back to your original question is, yeah, one, one of that optimism and hope and we can kind of, we get to be around the future every single day, which is so beautiful and, and humbling. But then at the same time, it's like this constant anger that I think drives everyone in the organization to be like, we can build a better world and we'll work with the young people we work with who will go on to build that better world, but we'll do it in the meantime whilst we're working with you to, to kind of get there. Yeah, and you kind of mentioned that anger that really bubbles away and actually that becomes the catalyst for you as an organization and as individuals as well to go out and lobby for change what are some of the ways that you do that yeah so it's it's really interesting for us i think we we know you have to work i guess with the system to be able to as well as against the system you can kind of construct your own reality which is that you know that those this the program that we deliver and the organization that we run and and create every single day is a version of the world that we want to live in and i think we're intensely kind of relational as an organization um and we're constantly kind of trying to find ways of working differently to what the world to how the world wants you to work um so there's there's, there's kind of that that we're doing every single day but then i guess the, the challenging nature of it is we know there, as you said, there is a kind of an appetite to reduce school exclusions because they're so under the radar. Uh, they're so, there's an appetite to reduce school exclusions because they're, they're increasing and everyone's scrutinizing them at the moment. Um, and with that, you have to be in the right spaces to be able to do that. So we're actually bringing on uh, a head of policy soon as well, who'll be kind of our, yeah, influencer in that space. Um, we know that working with government and MPs is really, really important. I spoke at the Labour Party conference this year and the Conservative Party conference, same panel, um, same messaging both times. And was actually really pleased to hear the kind of interest and appetite in our approach from Tory MPs as much as they were from, from Labour MPs. And I think building that sort of different narrative about how education can be different and how we really need to prioritise, I guess, 
relational approaches that really believe in young people that don't just scrutinize them through grades and can in, in encourage young people to engage with their passions but also being really trauma informed and, and thinking about attachment theory and what young people need etc you need to build that across all of your influences and all of your policymakers, and I think it's an area we just want to keep growing in and keep building in um, and it, it does obviously come with its challenges but I think one of our critical critical things that we can do is bring young people's voices into this space and if it's a young person that's actually sitting there and going this is my lived experience this is why your system doesn't work for me right now and this is what you need to do differently that's more powerful than any of us doing it yeah and you find there that it almost provides that direct pathway for a young person to start on their journey and almost the end product is them saying this is the journey and actually two years ago I wouldn't have got up in front of a room full of MPs full of policymakers and told you my story um, have you had examples of that where you have had your young people you know being the the platform for your message massively yeah it's something we're really really keen to do I think there's an amazing story where um, a guy called Elliot Hill, I want to say his surname is Hill, um, who is the global president of Nike, basically, or VP of Nike, came to an event where two of our young people were speaking. Deborah, although we, we still call Deborah a young person, but she is, she's in her first year of uni now, and she's, she's been on the programme, well, was on the programme when she was in year eight, and now she's 19 at university, and she works for us. Um, with her peer, Marley, who's the year below her, or two years below her, but also works for us now as well, whilst he's doing his A-levels. And again, same thing, started when he was in year eight. And the two of them were speaking about FUB and their journeys and, and um, yeah, the impact that it's had and what, what Nike's allowed us to do and all that sort of thing. And um, Elliot Hill was in the audience and he basically went up to me at the end and was like, you guys are amazing. Like, I really want to hang out with you more. What are you doing now? And they were like, oh, nothing. And then like Jasper, our director, was like, well, yeah, like, we can hang out and he was like come with me i want you, i want you to come to the spurs game they're playing inter milan and i've got a box and i want you to be in there with me and jess was like let me just call their parents but yeah sure it's fine i mean his parents are like yeah go so the two night he basically rearranges the whole table in the box and he's like puts deborah on his right marley on his left it's like you guys are going to teach me everything you're my bosses now and like we have this amazing conversational night where deborah and marley are like this is what it's like to be a young person in this city right now and Etc. And he was just so, um, yeah, taken aback by it and had this really amazing relationship, made sure they all got in an Uber on the way home, like sent them in a car back to their houses. And then Deborah followed up with an email to be like, like, it was really good to meet you, whatever. And then net the following year, so it's actually December last year, I think, or January this year, Nike were filming their Black History Month global black history month um campaign and they selected deborah to be in the campaign um as someone who's been influencing in their community and and getting loads of girls to play football etc and they flew her to new york and then they flew her to portland and when she was there she um off the off chance just emailed elliot and was like i'm in portland at like nike hq anyway he rearranged his entire schedule and brought his family to meet her in the reception and they had this like rendezvous where they caught up and that sort of thing. And then he'd emailed her back afterwards to be like, if this is a lesson, always like reach out, always, um, yeah, share like how you're feeling, et cetera. And always do reach out if you've met someone and they just had this yeah, really nice relationship. But like now he's listening to what, yeah, a 19 or 18 at the time, 18 year old girl from South London her take on the world so i think yeah that but that again proves the power of relationships those two young people were gone for a program like they're amazing amazing young people but they had seen the power of relationships through fbb through the relationships that they had with their practitioners with with brooke with joe all the people that have worked with them over the years and then they've got those skills to navigate those spaces at 18 19 years old and feel like yeah i deserve to be in this room and i deserve to be listened to and this is what I've got to say about the world and you're going to listen to me and they can have that relationship. And then it's like what that then goes on to spawn is just, yeah, unimaginable. Yeah. And it, it's those moments, isn't it, that they can set you up for life, really can. It's that moment where you don't feel like you're the stranger in the room. It's the moment where you're comfortable enough to say, I have an opinion and my opinion counts rather than just sort of sit and digest and think if I speak up, is it the right thing to say? Is it the right thing to do? And I think a lot of people, you know, don't 
get to that point actually through a lot of their life. So it's so good to hear stories like that, particularly, you know, with that powerful platform and brand interest as well. Um, because I don't think we can underestimate that obviously policymakers, MPs, governments are important, but actually the global power shift that's going into the hands of big corporates, it's also very important when we are trying to make social change. What kind of experience have you had? You, know, you mentioned Nike were actually one of your earliest sponsors of the women's programme. For the participants, what difference does it make having a big brand really investing in what you're doing and their programme? Yeah, it's a really good question. And it is it does make a difference. And I think it goes back to like passions led and interest led learning that from young people, I think if you find the middle ground or go go to a, not even the middle ground, but if you if you go to a young person and you engage them in the thing that excites them, then they're they're listening and they're a receptive, sort of receptive captive audience. And for us, that's we've used football in a like usually football is our main thing, right? It's the Trojan horse, we often call it. It gets young people in, it gets them hooked. And then we do all this social emotional and you know, help them with their behavior for learning, their attitude to school and all that sort of thing. But it's football that gets them in. Nike is, is one of those hooks, definitely. Um, we are really cautious with how we communicate around it and the messaging that kind of comes with it. And Nike aren't perfect, of course. They're like, you've got... <laughs> yeah kids in asia making trainers and i think there's they're they're dealing with that and they you know their their track record on kind of plastics is is good and they're thinking about the environment more they're obviously investing a lot into different communities in london and in kind of their key cities around the world and i think we're we're cautious with we know it's such an asset and and there's so much brand alignment and so much exciting stuff that comes with young people uh, and their relationship to Nike, particularly in London. Um, and what they can do is phenomenal. And what they have done for us particularly has been amazing. And their funding has allowed us to do, like I said, funding has allowed us to treble our girls program. And I think with, with that, we're getting more girls to play football, of course. And we're also, they're so generous with kind of what they provide. But then there's also the flip side of it, of us, empowering young people to challenge and ask questions and should brands play huge roles in young people's lives and is this just a huge capitalist ploy to make us all part of a machine that you know and spend all our money on trainers for example but if you if you develop and build and encourage sort of independent and creative thought in young people they'll ask those questions themselves and they'll arrive at their own answers with those things what nike are doing is putting money into a community initiative that allows us to do things that if we didn't have their funding, we wouldn't be able to do it. And I think they're also aware of that. I think they're, they, want to, they want young people to ask to, to, to challenge. I think if you think about the role that they could play and can and are playing in shifting narratives around young black footballers in the Premier League and how they've elevated Sterling's voice to, to the heights that they have, how they've backed Colin Cap, how they've platformed Megan Rapinoe like they have a huge amount of power and it's amazing to see them doing it in that way. And we can use things like that with young people, which is really important. We can then have later conversations as well because the young people will point out, they'll be like, well, don't, aren't they just doing this because they want us to buy their stuff? And you're like, yeah, I mean, there's also an argument there. So you have to be careful with it. And there's, there's a definitely a responsibility in it, but they do have a huge power to play in shifting and particularly social norms in this country. And I think all you need to do is look at sort of, any sort of backlash that comes on there. Never really read the comments, but on Instagram, if you read the comments, when they put out a political post with, whether it's Megan Rapinoe talking about what it's like to be a gay woman or Rashford trying to get kids free school meals, there's always gonna be hatred in the comments. And that's still an important reflection of the pr predominant thinking and feeling of a lot of people in this country. Um, so if Nike can be a role in changing that and putting their neck on the line to change it then yeah that that is a good thing yeah and you've i mean you've spoken sort of throughout about the power that feb has and actually the fact that you have those open conversations you have a real sense of community um through many mediums is there a moment in your time at feb that you can pinpoint as highlights there are so many. <laughs> there are so many because young people are just endless with that. 
I guess the one that it's always hard to not just go for like the big showpiece, like set piece events because they just stick with you so much. And there's so many tiny sort of micro moments that happen on a day to day with different young people. But I will go for the, the set piece event. During the Women's World Cup, we ran a, a project and a campaign called The Women Who Changed the Game. And it was about the fact that young people don't learn enough about women in school, in the history books, in TV shows, etc. What kind of women's history is not really there and particularly global women's history. So we, we like each group took um, a nation that was competing in the Women's World Cup and they researched a woman from who'd shaped that society in some way. So one group in the group doing Nigeria picked Grace Alalia Williams, who was the first woman to run a university in Nigeria. Another group chose Chimamanda Ngozi Adichie. Um, and they kind of wrote these historical pieces on those women and how they'd changed the game. Then they also then turned to women in London who were kind of shaping society in some way, whether it was music or art or graphics or film. Um, and they had a connection to their nation that they'd chosen. So we had, yeah, 12, uh, I think we had 12 women from eight different nations come in and meet the girls in a studio and they um, interviewed them. The girls interviewed the game changer and they wrote this amazing zine and they launched their manifesto on the back of it of like the game, the, the changes they wanted to see in the world. And we, it culminated in a launch night. And this launch night was the girls basically running an exhibition, an immersive exhibition with all these yeah, paying adults of, of yeah, the public. And the girls just led the whole thing. And they basically took them through this exhibition of the project and walked them through what, how they'd explored women and what the issues were and got, young, uh, got guests to kind of do interactive stuff with them at each, each session. And then afterwards there was a more showcase bit and I kind of stood back and watched as, yeah, I get quite emotional talking about it, but these girls who were 12, 13, up to 15, and had often been told your voice doesn't matter or you're kind of just, you, you can't do anything right. And every phone call home has been a negative one from their school. And suddenly you're in a room where they're standing in front of 200 people and they're talking about, I'm a girl from South London who everyone thinks is unintelligent and rude because I use colloquial language and I'm always talking. But actually what I've got to say is that I'm going to be, I'm going to be an MP for my local community when I'm 25 years old. And I'm going to, all I want to do is make sure that my mum's okay and that no woman has to go through the hardship that my mum's had to come to come through coming through this, to this country for the first time, this racist government and blah, blah, blah. And you've got this, these girls just standing on stage and just taking up the space. It's like, that's what you can do if you tap into a girl's sense of self and you tap into something that's inside them all, but might not have, they've never had the conditions or, or for it to be brought out. I think that for me was like a dad, that was it afterwards. One of the dads said to me, like, I look at my daughter differently now. I didn't know she was capable of that. She can go on and do whatever she wants. She wants, she's always said she wants to be a lawyer. I've just seen her stand up on stage and I genuinely treat her more like an adult woman now. And I was like, wow, for that to have that sort of impact with her and what that means she can kind of go on and do is like, yeah, I think definitely a, a huge highlight. And the girls still speak about it now as something that they'll, they'll never forget. And I think just being part of that and witnessing it was a, a massive highlight. It must be amazing then you see, you know, a, a shift in the perception of their closest environment as well, because I think quite a lot of those narratives, you know, if they're fed to you every day about, okay, you know, maybe you shouldn't go for law because actually there's not a lot of people in law that look like you and actually be safer doing this and it's with the best intention and it is a social norm to do that because you want to protect your child and actually you know to have those closest to you whether it's an educator whether it's a family member being able to see that child in a different light because of FBB's support, and obviously it's a lot on the, the child themselves and actually the self-discovery that they've gone on um, to enable them to do that, that will change someone's life trajectory because it will stop from them from saying no to opportunities. It will lead them to send that follow-up email to the head of Nike <laughs> because they feel like they can back themselves. And you know those shifts in attitudes for an individual can change their, their whole sort of yeah life prospects so um it must be incredibly rewarding to be in that environment and kind of be a part of of the fabric itself now i have one final question for you um before we go and 
it is if you could go back to the day that your academy was shut down um and give your past self a piece of advice knowing what you know now what would it be that is such a big question someone asked me this question the other day like what would you tell your 14 year old self and it was actually don't give up street dancing you really liked street dancing and i had to choose between football and street dance and i chose football which i'm glad i did but why didn't I keep street dancing? It was so much fun. Um, what would I say to myself on that day? Something <laughs> super cliched, but like life has a really funny way of like the things that matter and the things that kind of orbit you. Some things won't be in orbit at some time, but trust that they will come back and trust that if it's written, it will, it will happen. It, it, and, and I think with me at that time, it was like, there was so much anger around that decision. And I remember writing to like the press and trying to like, as a 16 year old, get an article in the Guardian and like no one cared, obviously. But you, that, that was all part of this journey to become in a position where I can now work with girls and see the same sorts of things playing out, but have so much more agency, both individually with them and also structurally at systems level where I can be like this isn't good enough and I think trusting that everything happens for a reason is so cliche but I do genuinely believe that yeah I think the things that are meant to to happen will and they'll come back to you and just to to trust in that process I think I think that actually makes so much sense because like just because it's not visible in the orbit at the moment just because you can't see it from your telescope doesn't mean it's not hiding around the other side of the planet that kind of thing and it will come back around you made the metaphor much better <laughs> we, we can somehow mix those two up um, <laughs> <Co-created>. but, <laughs> literally so long thank you so much for joining us um, your insights have been fantastic um, i'm just really excited for everyone to listen and i guess get a view into maybe the part of football that a lot of people don't see and actually have the privilege not to see. Um, and I think that's just as important um, for you guys, you know, for yourself as an individual and for FBB as a platform and organization um, to show the world and actually get people advocating and donating as well. Um, and hopefully it instigates some action um, for the MPLH audience too. So thank you so much for your time. Thank you so much for having me. It's been a wicked, wicked conversation. For more of our content, both online and in print, visit mplhmag.com.